Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Fabiani Duarte, chair of the ABA Law Student Division. I'm a third-year law student at Mercer University's School of Law in Georgia. Our show today is presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law and graduate students and recent grads, from finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job. We hope this show is a trusted resource for you, our listeners. This past year has been a special one for me, as I've explained in the past, because not only have I been able to wrap up my last two semesters of law classes at Mercer Law, but I've also been able to kick off my first year in seminary at Mercer's McAfee School of Theology. One of the classes I've been able to experience uh, is an intersection between law and theology called Restorative Justice, taught by Professor Melissa Browning. In this class, we've discussed and focused on issues concerning social and restorative justice that relate to the criminal justice system in America, including the Black Lives Matter movement, the death penalty as it works in America today, and mass incarceration as is experienced by U.S. citizens. I've asked a fellow McAfee seminarian who is also a colleague in the class to help me co-host this short series. For this episode, I've asked my good friend, Lindsay Addington, uh, to, to join us. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, Fabi. So, Lindsay, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Fabi. Um, I'm a second-year Christian ethics student here at McAfee. I work as a minister to the aging, and I'm an instructor in the Theological Studies program at Lee Arendelle Prison. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Really excited to have you as a co-host for today's episode. For today's show, we would like to welcome Professors Sarah Gorig-Moore of Mercer Law School, also Dr. Melissa Browning uh, from the School of Theology, and my professor in the Restorative Justice class. Professor Sarah Gorig-Moore's teaching and scholarship interests center around constitutional, criminal law, appellate and post-conviction practice and procedure, and experiential public service learning. Since joining Mercer's faculty in 2006, she's created and now teaches the Habeas Project, the only pro bono effort in Georgia to offer representation in non-capital post-conviction cases. That clinic has briefed and argued over 60 cases, including issues of first impression in the state's highest court. Most recently, Professor Gerwig Moore was the lead counsel for Josh Bishop, gentleman who was executed this past April 12th by the state of Georgia. Before joining the Mercer faculty, Sarah was the senior appellate supervising attorney at the Georgia Public Defender Standards Council. She also uh, received her BA from Mercer University and a Master of Theological Studies from Emory. And her JD is also from the Emory School of Law. Some of uh, Professor Gerwig Moore's recent honors and awards include the Shannara Gilbert Emerging Clinician Award from the National Association of Law Schools Clinical Legal Education Section. This is an award provided and selected by fellow clinical instructors. And Professor Gerwig Moore was also named to Georgia Trends 40 Under 40. We're excited to welcome Professor Gerwig Moore to today's interview. Welcome, Professor. 
Thank you. It's good to be here. We'd also like to welcome Dr. Melissa Browning. Dr. Browning is an ordained Baptist pastor and the visiting assistant professor of contextual ministry at Mercer University. Dr. Browning is a community-based participatory action researcher and Christian ethicist. Browning's recent academic work has focused on ethnographic research in East Africa. Browning is also an anti-death penalty activist and organizer of the Kelly On My Mind Collective. Um, welcome, uh, Dr. Browning. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Today we'd like to talk about restorative justice as it relates to specifically the death penalty. When we talk about restorative justice and um, this kind of controversial issue for uh, many Americans, uh, especially uh, theologians and lawyers alike, what are some of the most important concepts or even misconceptions that you think our listeners should have clear in their mind as they approach this type of conversation? Why don't we start with you, Professor Gerwig-Moore? Well, I, I think the biggest problem with restorative justice and, and, and the conversations around restorative justice is that most people don't think very much about it. I, um, restorative justice means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For some people, you hear restorative justice and imagine um, a kumbaya sitting around in a circle with, you know, community members talking about lower level crimes. For some people, they, they do think about victim outreach in the context of death penalty cases. Um, but, but the truth is, uh, there are lots of different ways to integrate principles of restorative justice throughout the criminal justice system from juvenile and misdemeanor cases on up to capital punishment cases. And, and it's a conversation I'm glad that's, that's present and starting. And, and I, I would like for that conversation to, to spread and grow because I, I do believe there's a lot of place in our very adversarial and broken criminal justice system for principles of restorative justice, uh, uh, both for defendants and and. Very victims and their family members. All right. Thank you, Professor. How about you, Dr. Browning? What do you think? You know, when we take a really broad look at our criminal justice system, one of the things that we can do is we can kind of step back from a moral lens and ask the question, what are we doing um, to help restore people to society once they've been convicted of a crime? Um, Do we just lock them up and throw away the key? Um, which in many cases, that's what happened. Do we really have a society? Do we want to have a society where we say that some people are disposable? Um, do we want to have a society where we say that redemption is not possible? You know, when we uh, think about our criminal justice system, which is often called, right, we have Department of Correction, and we talk about rehabilitation, um, and those are big words, um, but we sometimes don't live up to that. In fact, we often don't live up to that. Um, when I was working in Kelly Gissendaner's campaign, Kelly was a model inmate. Um, she was the person who the guards brought other women to. They would put them in the cell next to Kelly, um, and they would allow Kelly to counsel other women. During the campaign, we met about 10 women who um, tried to commit suicide, but Kelly prevented them from doing so. And so, you know, with Kelly, with Josh, with so many recently, we've seen these amazing stories of redemption where folks in prison have made something amazing of themselves. Um, But because they're on death row, their lives were still seen as absolutely disposable. And so, you know, in Kelly's case, when we tried... um, to, a, to do a restorative justice process. And in several recent cases, 
in Georgia, there had been attempts um, to bring um, the victim's family into the parole board and things like this to advocate, um, but those have been relatively unsuccessful in the end. Dr. Browning, could you tell us a little bit more about Kelly Gissendaner and your work on her campaign? Sure, I can. Um, Kelly uh, was uh, convicted. She was um, convicted for killing her husband. She did not actually commit the crime. Um, Her um, boyfriend at the time did. She was not present at the scene. She was not the trigger person. Um, But she did receive life, even though the person who actually committed the crime was eligible for parole. Um, And so when Kelly's case came up, she had been such a model citizen, a graduate from the theology program, um, and everyone was fairly assured um, that she would get clemency and that her sentence would be converted to life in prison without parole. Um, We were so convinced of that that there wasn't even um, any sort of public action campaign or or any real news around her her execution date because everyone was waiting for that so that clemency could be granted. Um, but then in the end, the parole board did not grant clemency. Um, we uh, were lucky in that a snow date canceled her first execution date and cloudy drugs canceled her second. And that gave us a window um, where there was a moratorium in Georgia for a brief period um, while the state studied the drugs that they were using. And in Georgia, we're under secrecy laws, which means we can't know anything about the drugs um, that are used in our executions. Um, the person who's being executed has no right to know. And so we had a brief window, um, but in, in, in the end, we got in October, um, in September, actually, we got another uh, parole board hearing and parole was again denied, even though in that period of time, we had just hundreds of women who were incarcerated with Kelly come and give testimony as to the influence that she played on her lot, on their lives. And I think what we're seeing in Georgia, in Kelly's case, in Josh's case, in so many other cases, is that the claims that we're bringing before the court, um, before the parole board particularly, particularly don't matter. Um, whether or not there's a strong innocence claim and there's no DNA connecting the person to the crime, as in several cases recently, um, whether there's a transformation story, past trauma, past abuse, none of those things seem to matter. Um, it's almost as if nothing um, can change the mind of the parole board. And, you know, we've seen quite a few executions. We're one of six states that actively executes. Um, and we have had uh, we've had more executions than any state so far this year. So speaking about Kelly's story makes me want to ask you, Professor Gerwig Moore, about some of the work that you do with the Habeas Project um, at Mercer Law. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you work with law students uh, through that project and maybe a little bit more about what you worked on this semester? Sure. So uh, I came to teach at Mercer uh, as an appellate public defender. And my job was to help create a public service program at the law school to reignite a clinical legal education program, putting law students in in a, in a setting where they'd be working on public service projects for real clients and learning along the way, hands-on learning. You can do that through simulation or you can do that working on real problems. And it's always been my strong preference to teach law students in a way that allows us to help meet the great legal needs in in Georgia in particular. So generally what we do in the Habeas Project, and we've continued to do that while working on Josh Bishop's case, 
is we take all of the pro se, all of the uncounseled, non-capital cases in the Georgia Supreme Court. So if the Georgia Supreme Court accepts a case on cert or appeal, generally these are appeals from habeas petitions, we step in and offer free legal representation to the person whose case is there before the Supreme Court. That ends up to be about six cases a year. Those are, again, generally not capital cases. Capital punishment cases have not been my specialty for a number of reasons. And they're all constitutional criminal law cases. They're fascinating. We've had great success. Uh, Some failure, obviously, too, but some wonderful successes. I generally have about eight students a year in in the class, and I have just finished my 10th year working with just so many wonderful students and wonderful clients on really fascinating intellectual issues, but, you know, we also do our best to offer client-centered representation and visit with our clients, work with them, and, and find outcomes that they like. We've seen clients walk out of prison. We've reunited clients with their children. It's been just tremendously rewarding work, and, and students have learned in a way that you just can't if you're limited to a law book and a, and a smart board. About four years ago, though, we, we took on a capital case, which was different for us because of a really special client, a really special man on death row, Josh Bishop. And, and we followed his case. We worked on his case in the 11th Circuit in a final federal habeas appeal. We wrote a cert petition to the United States Supreme Court, which was not successful, although it did get some attention, drew some attention to, I think, an important issue of constitutional law. And then we were lead counsel through the clemency process that Professor Browning was just discussing in in another different, in some ways, uh, case for clemency, but also what we thought was a very, very strong case for clemency, also unsuccessful for reasons known only to the parole board. Professor Gerwig-Moore, when you defend a capital case, what kind of relationship do you develop with the defendant? Um, that's a really, that's an interesting question because I, I, like I said, I'm really not a a capital defender. Um, I have a lot of respect for people whose entire careers is in death penalty work. That's not where I am. Um, I've been on the fringes of, of the fight against capital punishment and helped out. I interned for, uh, the California appellate project doing work on California's death row about 15 years ago. I was kind of helpful, more really in a pastoral role in a death penalty case about five years ago. Uh, But Josh's case was the only case where I've been lead counsel. Um, And Josh was also, I'm not sure whether you know this or not, but, but Josh was also a childhood friend of mine. So there's really no script for how close you let yourself get to a man who's on death row, who you think is really an object lesson. In, in grace and redemption, who also stood up for you in sixth grade when you were excluded on the playground. And so the answer to that really is that we, uh, my students and I were very close with Josh. Um, the prison, death row prison, is only about 30 minutes away from Macon, where I live and teach. So we saw him uh, probably weekly for years. Um, toward the end, it was more than once a week. We talked on the phone. He sent uh, drawings to my students and to me. We wrote letters. Um, he was my friend. He was my friend in the 1980s, and he was my friend when he was executed. And so I, I don't think that's um, 
it's typical to have uh, an attorney-client relationship that, that started 30 years ago in sixth grade. But I also, I do think it's very typical because of how long these cases, cases take for clients and lawyers to become very close, particularly with, with really thoughtful, kind, and, and loving clients like Josh. So, Professor... And I think, you know... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Brown. Yeah. Would, yeah, I think uh, one of the things that is really key in this that we don't talk about much um, is the trauma that folks who are working these cases experience. Um, you know, I uh, was able to kind of walk through this with Kelly Gissendaner's lawyers and um, the the grief that they experienced in her death, having worked with her for so long. Um, you know, one of her lawyers was present at the execution, um, the first execution, execution that she had ever been present for. Um, and then we've had so many executions in Georgia recently that folks who do this work, um, the lawyers, the investigators, the activists, the pastors who are working with these folks on death row, um, the grief has become overwhelming. Um, you know, I have friends who do this work and, you know, some of them are, you know, losing somebody that they work with every two weeks right now. And um, that type of of grief, we just don't really expect. We don't really think about that, and we don't factor that in when we're really talking about the cost of the death penalty. Um, and that even, you know, goes to the prison guards, to wardens, um, to people who we make do this work. Um, you know, we um, heard from some people who worked at the prison uh, during Kelly's execution through kind of some pastoral channels that they were asking pastors coming in to visit prisoners to pray for them um, because they didn't know how they were going to walk through this. Um, and that happens frequently. And so there's a, there's a trauma, there's a kind of a societal trauma um, that we inflict on our, our state when we ask people to carry out these executions, to walk alongside people who are being executed, um, because we're witnessing a murder in that case. You mentioned grief. Uh, what do you say to the victims of crimes committed by those who are on death row? Yeah, that's a really good question, Lindsay. Oh, go ahead, Sarah, go ahead. I was going to say, I've spent a great deal of time with the victims in Josh's case. um, And uh, the most remarkable extension of grace and kindness were from members of the victims' families who wanted to see clemency in Josh's case. In fact, one of the victims' sisters sent me a gardenia plant uh, this week, asking, thanking me for fighting for Joshua. The truth is there's no script for any of this. There's no script for knocking on a door of someone who's been hurt by someone you're representing. Because, of course, uh, for many people, the very, very understandable response would be to extend the anger and the pain they feel uh, caused by the loss of their loved one, um, to extend that to you as as the you know the killer's representative, and 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 clearly in our case, not all of the victims' family members supported clemency, but most of the victims' family members supported clemency, and not just in a kind of neutral way, but in a in a very powerful way, pleading with the parole board to grant clemency in Josh's case for for any number of reasons. Um, I think you, we have to start from a place, although we, re, we work for 
our clients, the, the people on death row, we have to start from a place of understanding the pain that they've caused. And it's naive and incomplete to, to ignore that and focus um, on their pain because, of course, our clients feel pain, but they've also caused pain unless there's an innocence claim. And, and in my case and in Kelly Gessendaner's case, there weren't innocence claims. And so that we had to deal with some really palpable pain that they'd caused. And, and our clients had to deal with that as well as part of their kind of um, moral development and coming to terms with what they'd done. I think that's where restorative justice principles come in. And, and honestly, just basic human decency is being able to uh, empathize and care about the pain of other people and, and then listen. Listening was um, mostly what I did when, in those first conversations with family members um, uh, of the victims cases uh, of the victims in Josh's case. Dr. Browning. And yeah, in Kelly's case, um, you know, some of the closest victims were, um, Kelly and Doug's children. And, um, Doug was the person who was killed. And when the children came forward and pled for mercy, when they reconciled with their mom, um, through a process of mediation where they really, um, they did the hard work of reconciliation, um, where they really asked her to tell the truth about what happened and, and really came to the point of forgiving their mom. Um, you know, they were the closest, the closest victims to this, um, in my opinion, because they, um, they lost their father. They had to grow up without a father. Um, but in the end, they weren't seen as victims by the parole board because they sided with their mom. Um, and so, uh, that was a really difficult thing, um, in the, in the entire campaign and, you know, in our anti-death penalty work, we don't forget about the victims, all of the victims. Um, but I've also found that it's not very cut and dry. Um, and I've also found, uh, that killing, um, the perpetrator is not necessarily going to bring any reprieve to the victims. Um, it often does not do what they think it will do. Um, there have been many um, who have regretted that they watched the execution um, of the person who killed their loved one or regretted that they supported it um, because in the end they still had that same that same hole that they thought was going to be fixed and the closure that they thought they were going to have was not um, did not actually happen um, and so you know I think what victims um, very badly need is some kind of closure. I think that restorative justice processes can give them closure, um, but even in the absence of those, um, I'm more worried about the fact that we think it's okay to be a society who chooses to kill, um, and that we choose to be a society that kills arbitrarily. Um, you know, in these cases, uh, we're seeing that a lot of times there are two people who commit the crime, and one ends up killed for it, one ends up on death row, um, and then the other one is eligible for parole, and so... If we're going to have a death penalty, which I don't think we should have, um, but if we're going to have one, it needs to be fair. It needs to not be arbitrary. It needs to be for the worst of the worst. But what we've seen across this country is that we don't have a death penalty that's for the worst of the worst. We have a death penalty that kills folks who've been redeemed. We have a death penalty that kills folks who are sorry. Um, and so when we don't give any regard um, as a society to those key tenets, um, I think we're in a real problem, and I think it shows us um, some of the huge flaws of the death penalty. So, professors, uh, you talk about um, the death penalty and some of the impact that it has on 
on victims, uh, on defendants. What, what, are you, what are some reasons that you think the death penalty still remains if, as, as your experience places it, um, it, it causes this much consternation? I think folks really, if they knew more about what a capital case looks like from start to finish, and it's generally a 15 to 20 year process, that, and if they knew how expensive it is and that they were paying for it, I, I don't believe that that the majority of voters would support capital punishment. I think that in in the Bible Belt, which is also the Death Belt, mo- most of the um, states that have and employ capital punishment are former slave states. Uh, they're also the states that uh, have the most number of voters that identify as Christian. I think people. Uh, go to Bible verses like an eye for an eye or thou shalt not kill and think, gosh, for the worst of the worst, like Professor Browning was saying, we need to reserve the ultimate punishment just in case. But their analysis really stops there because they're not confronted with what capital punishment looks like in America. Because the truth is people with funds who commit horrible crimes, are able to employ lawyers who are able to secure plea bargains that don't include capital punishment. So right away, generally speaking, uh, people with influence, with family connections, with support, don't have to worry uh, in any meaningful way about being charged with the death penalty, and neither do their loved ones. And so you think about who is is charged or noticed with death in in the case of a murder, and you think about who those people know or don't know. And and they're really the unseen folks. They're the poorest of the poor. Generally, they suffer from mental illness or some mental disability. Um, These are the people who are not on a national radar screen, and they, generally speaking, don't come to the forefront of the national uh, radar from the depths of death row. And, and so I think that the truth is that people are really um, ignorant about this issue because it doesn't affect most of us. Uh, we have very, very few people on death row, thousands of people serving life sentences for murder, thousands in Georgia, uh, even for multiple homicides. Uh, and we looked this, these stats up in preparation for Josh's clemency case. Uh, there are around 85 people on death row, such a small portion of the population. And again, when you think of these folks as being very marginalized, generally somewhat limited, all very poor, um, they're just unseen. And and so it, it, it's it's not a major topic at the legislature in, in the uh, legislative session because it affects relatively few people. And the people who it does affect are not people with power or influence. And and that's why I think it's really apathy and a lack of understanding of what capital punishment entails, both from a moral perspective and from a tax and and fiscal perspective. Um, So that's that's my longish answer to that question. Thank you, Professor. Dr. Browning, what what are your thoughts on on why the death penalty is um, still active in the country. Yeah, I agree completely with Professor Gergmore. The The problem that we have is um, what happens on death row is hidden. We don't hear stories. We don't communicate with folks on death row. 
um, for the most part. We, um, what they are allowed to say, even who they can speak to, is all very controlled. And so um, when the public hears the story, it's almost too late. They've got an execution date set. Um, and then it's really just who's paying attention at that time. You know, I mean, just last week in Georgia, we executed a man with an IQ of 74. Um, he is intellectually, he was intellectually disabled. That is unconstitutional, according um, to the Supreme Court. However, in, they leave it up to the states to decide. And because Georgia um, uses such a high burden of proof, um, that it has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that a person has an intellectual disability. Um, we have one of the worst sentencing schemes with that nation um, because we, uh, we do not allow people to um, have relief from execution because of intellectual disability. This same person, Kenny Foltz, um, was, called, um, uh, was, was called the N-word by a juror. Um, the, they knew the case was going to be racially charged because he killed a white woman. Um, yet, uh, because this didn't come to light in time, um, for her, for him to claim this, um, the Supreme Court didn't hear it and didn't consider it. And so we see just in this one case, um, that one of the reasons he got the death penalty was the deep racism, as Dr. Gary Moore said, um, the death belt is also former slaveholding states, um, that's one reason. We also see that he was poor, that he was intellectually disabled, and he had all these things stacked against him. Um, and so, you know, when we look at those factors, um, you know, again, we can't say that we should use the death penalty if it's being applied so arbitrarily. Um, and I think these, every example that we've seen in the last seven or eight executions, um, we've been, uh, we've executed um, two people with intellectual disabilities um, in the last, I think, eight executions that we've had in Georgia. Two of those folks have intellectual disabilities. There's another about seven folks on death row who have intellectual disabilities um, and who could be executed despite that. Um, so when we see that and we see um, the, the problems, um, and again, those problems are largely hidden from the public view. Um, the death penalty looks like a kind of a well-oiled machine that, you know, is doing its job, it's deterring crime. Um, but when we look really deeply at it and we see the problems and we mainly when we start to listen to stories um, of those who have been executed, of those who are on death row, we see a completely different picture. We usually hear about restorative approaches applied to misdemeanors and drug-related crimes. How could we apply restorative approaches in murder trials? And how can you address the needs of victims, defendants, and the community in a capital trial? I can say something about that, and I'll let Professor Gerig Moore say something as well. Um, you know, one of the things that we can do in terms of restorative justice in a capital trial is um, we, can, we can arrange for um, conversations to happen um, between those who are victims and those who committed the crime. Um, these conversations, when done um, in a restorative justice process, um, this mediation can be very successful. Um, it can um, give the family of the victim closure. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do. I mean, what the death penalty is supposed to do is kind of give us some kind of closure. Um, but we often find that it doesn't. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the family wants to know why it happened. Um, often the family wants closure and they want to know that the person has changed. And that's what a restorative justice process can provide. I think also um, 
many times the machinery of the state, the investigating officers, the district attorney may assume that victims' families will equate justice being done in their loved one's case with seeking the most extreme punishment, the death penalty. And uh, having worked with a number of family members on the other side of things, having worked with family members who have had loved ones murdered, that is not always the case. And I think really, again, we talk about restorative justice principles. That's wonderful. Starting with just listening to what victims' families have to say before assuming that victims' families will always want to seek capital punishment. Also sharing with victims' family members the long process that comes with the uh, constitutional appeals, um, again, 15 to 20 years of appeals, 15 to 20 years of being afraid of uh, a capital sentence being overturned and their lives being disrupted and coming to court or watching the news, where a guilty plea that includes an allocution, uh, a statement of guilt, sometimes statement of remorse, and life without parole or a life with parole sentence can really do so much more um, to address what the victim's actual needs are rather than what are the victim's perceived or supposed needs are. So, I, I mean, again, I think there are lots of ways to infuse restorative justice principles, but, but a lot of this just begins with basic human listening and, and treating victims with the dignity that they deserve in this process. Um, generally, they're left out of the process, too, in, in the same way that the defendants and their advocates are. And so that's when the adversarial system takes over and, and the people who are hurt are the defendants and their loved ones and the victims and their loved ones. And, and really we find neither one of these sides has much of a voice in the process. Thank you, Professor. So taking victims, defendants, society all into account, it's an it's a interesting balance, right? Because we as uh, our law students who are going to be future attorneys or theologians who uh, are ministering to make society whole, how do we uh, uphold community standards that won't tolerate certain actions like murder while at the same time restoring victims uh, to uh, some sense of justice? How, how do we hold those intention correctly? I, I was just going to reiterate, I, I really believe that life without the possibility of parole uh, effectuates all of that in a, in a way that gives confidence in the outcome to the victim's family, that uh, keeps the state out of the business of killing human beings and out of the taxpayers out of the business of paying for the state to be in the business of killing human beings and appropriately punishes for um, defendants, for their mistakes, horrible actions, but still recognizes their humanity, allows for redemption, allows for continuation of relationships with their family and loved ones, and uh, acknowledges that good can still come, correction can still come through our Department of Corrections, however rare that may be. And uh, again, when the legislature 
legislature adopted life without the possibility of parole as a, as a sentencing option, we saw a drastic reduction in uh, death penalty sentencing. In fact, there's only one death penalty sentence handed down by a jury last year. So we see jurors are catching on to this and, and the state is catching on to this. Um, we just can't get ourselves out of the business of executing the people who were unfortunate enough to be sentenced to death uh, years and years ago. Thank you. Dr. Browning? Um, yeah, I agree completely. Um, when we're thinking about um, the role of the community in this, um, one thing that we quickly realize is that the community doesn't have much of a voice. Um, beyond those few people who sit on a jury, we don't really have a place for uh, the community to be reconciled. And when a crime happens, um, it doesn't just shake the family um, who had a family member who was the victim of that crime. It shakes the entire community. Um, when a murder happens in my neighborhood, our whole neighborhood is going to be affected by that. And so one of the things that restorative justice teaches us is that there needs to be a process for the community to be re represented in the reconciliation as well. Um, so, you know, as we're thinking about this, and as we're looking at kind of our broad community, we're seeing support for the death penalty waning. And so we have to ask the question of why are we then in Georgia executing so many people? Um, we have seen uh, public, public support for the death penalty decrease. We are still over the 50% mark in terms of who supports the death penalty in Georgia. But I believe that if we had more education around the death penalty, if people really understood how much money they're spending to carry this out, if we really understood um, the burden that that was placing on corrections officials and on those who we outsource that killing to, I think we would think about this in a different way. All right. Well, uh, professors, you know, we, we've come to the, the end of our time, but before we go, uh, I would love to ask you both just some, some quick takeaways that we always like to um, uh, request from our guests. And the first one is, what would you say your life's motto is? In other words, how would you put your calling into words as it relates either to the work that you're doing uh, with this or how you interact with your students and, and how you hope to continue to live um, your professional life? Mine I'll start with that, I think. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, good. I, it's great that you both have an answer to that question. That's excellent. We do. So, you have to tell right. us who, how to go. <laughs> all right. Um, well, uh, why don't we start with uh, Professor Gerwig Moore? All right. Well, Professor uh, Browning, I'm sure, uh, has heard this, uh, and it, this is not my own uh, of my own making. Uh, Frederick Beekner said that that our vocation, our calling, is where our deep gladness meets the world's great need. And, and that's really how I think I tried to live my life. I think none of us need to be martyrs, and, and I would not be a very happy woman if I were, were trying to deal with all of the contracts problems in the world. I'm sure there are very many. Um, but I, I have tried to follow my heart and do work that I enjoy, work that I'm good at, but also uh, serves the public good. And that's what I encourage my students to do as well. It served me well. It, it's heartbreaking. I'm I am in a I am actively grieving today, guys. But but I do think that the world um, needs folks who care about these issues, and I'm I'm glad to be one of them um, in general, if not if not today. Um, I think mine is uh, comes from scripture from Micah six eight, um, where it says to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. 
Um, and the ideas of doing justice and loving mercy um, are really key to my life's work. Um, but at the same time, I recognize that for many of us who care about creating change in the world, um, the idea of doing justice um, can be overwhelming because there are so many problems in our society that need to be fixed. Um, you know, I'm writing a book right now called Navigating Dystopia. Um, and I really mean that because, you know, a lot about our society feels dystopian, especially when you work on um, death penalty in Georgia right now. Um, I, I think the, the other thing I'd want to say is that um, as people who care about creating change, we need stories. Um, when I started working on Kelly Gissendaner's campaign, I didn't know Kelly. I didn't know her family. Um, I had students who were working at the prison who told me about Kelly, um, and I felt it was a deep injustice, and I entered into the campaign by sitting down and reading her clemency petition that was written by lawyers, and um, as I read it, I felt such a deep sense of calling to somehow place my body in the way of this destruction. Um, and so what I did first was I sat down and I prayed through her um, clemency petition, which is not something I normally do. I normally get out and do something. I don't normally sit and um, pray and meditate on things for long periods of time. Um, but I was glad to do that in that case. And just in reading those words that her lawyers wrote about her life, um, I felt like I had been converted by this story. Um, by this deep injustice, and I knew that I needed to do something and respond in some meaningful way, um, which is how I entered into this group of justice seekers who were working on her campaign. Well, professors, thank you for joining us today for a great conversation. Uh, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Uh, those are some real awesome takeaways that help, I think, remind uh, all our listeners uh, the motivations that uh, you take into the work that you do and that uh, are important for us as we walk in this journey, uh, legal or theological or whatever it may be, to know that uh, there is there's a fire that burns within us that is more than sometimes the, the books or tests or the finals that uh, stare us in the face at this time of the year. So, um, so thank you for, for sharing those thoughts with us. Besides um, uh, finding you online, um, do you guys have Twitter handles or uh, web pages that uh, you uh, would like our listeners to refer to? Uh, Professor Gerwig Moore? Oh, gosh. I had to delete Twitter because of some things I said about the parole board, so I don't have a Twitter anymore. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just finding is the best way to find me at the Mercer Law School website. All right. Great. Uh, how about you, Professor Browning? I still have a... I still have a Twitter. I probably should have deleted it because of things I often say about the parole board. Um, but mine is Imagine Justice. Um, and you're welcome to follow me there um, or go to my website, uh, www.melissabrowning.com. We hope you've enjoyed another episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. We'd like to encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to our show on iTunes. And once you've done that, take a moment to rate and review us as well. You can also tweet to us at a-B-A-L-S-D, and use hashtag Law Student Podcast to tell us what's on your mind. I'm at Fabiani Duarte, and I'd also like to thank uh, my co-host today, Ms. Lindsay Addington, for uh, joining me on this episode of Restorative uh, Justice Series that we've had uh, for the podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you everybody for listening. 
Work hard, play smart, and until next time, podcasters. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.